His fans include millions of viewers on YouTube and at least one justice of the United States Supreme Court. Thomas Sowell on Uncommon Knowledge Now. Welcome to Uncommon Knowledge. I'm Peter Robinson. After growing up in Harlem, Thomas Sowell served in the United States Marine Corps, then earned an undergraduate degree from Harvard, a master's degree from Columbia, and a doctorate from the University of Chicago. Now a fellow at the Hoover Institution, Thomas Sowell has written some 40 books, including his most recent book, Social Justice Fallacies, and lived 93 years. On the last episode of Uncommon Knowledge, Dr. Sowell and I discussed this book, Social Justice Fallacies. Today we'll be discussing a few of Dr. Sowell's admirers and an issue that is very much in the news. Tom, welcome back. Good to be back. Affirmative action. This past July, the Supreme Court handed down a decision in Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard. Although the court had permitted race-based university admissions ever since the 1978 Baki case, now, this past July, the court called such affirmative action unconstitutional. Chief Justice John Roberts, the Harvard and University of North Carolina admissions programs cannot be reconciled with the guarantees of the Equal Protection Clause, close quote. And Tom Sowell responded how when you read that news? I was glad that they said what they did. I will wait and see how it will be applied. Uh, I was glad when I saw, read the original Bakke decision because it said that all the, we can't have quotas and so forth. But in there somewhere, there was a little uh, uh, opening. Wait. And it said that, that uh, you know, well, you can do this and you can do that, which, which turns out to mean you can't have quotas if you call them quotas. But if you call them something else, you can. And, and in Justice, uh, Chief Justice uh, Roberts' opinion, he's telling Harvard that, uh, well, you can take the race and uh, uh, you can have people write essays and mention race and so forth. Well, then what you're saying is you're all offering them another escape hatch. And so only time will tell how big that escape hatch will be. For myself, I think that Harvard, with, with, a, uh, with tens of billions of dollars in endowments, can afford to hire their own attorney rather than have the Chief Justice of the United States offer them advice on how to evade the, 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 the uh, decisions that's been made. All right. Your oldest, one of your oldest friends, Justice Thomas, yes. wrote a concurring decision in which he quoted you extensively. And I want to come to that. But first, if I may, affirmative action itself as an issue. I just took the Wikipedia article on affirmative action, and I'm quoting from Wikipedia. Affirmative action is intended to alleviate underrepresentation and to promote the opportunities of defined minority groups within a society to give them access equal to that of the majority population. Alleviate opportunities, equal access, what could be wrong with such things? Well, there are always wonderful words to describe things that are not very wonderful. Tom, I, again, on affirmative action as an issue in itself, I read up a little bit on the history of this. 
the first use of the term affirmative action takes place in an executive order, John Kennedy, 1961. He's telling government contractors to take affirmative action to make sure that none of their employees is discriminated against yes. on the basis of race. Johnson, President Johnson issues a, an executive order in 65 with almost the same wording. And in between these two, this executive order in 61 and the executive order in 65, we get the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which prohibits discrimination on the basis of race. And Senator Hubert Humphrey was the floor manager of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And he said the act, quote, would prohibit, prohibit preferential treatment for any group. Humphrey added, quote, I will eat my hat if this leads to racial quotas, close quote. Yes. And so this is the mid-60s. By the mid-70s, racial quotas are the stuff and substance of affirmative action. Bakke comes along and says, you're not allowed to have quotas, but you're allowed to take race into effect, into account in admissions decisions. So quotas get drop out of the picture, but still it's preferential treatment. It begins with a notion of neutral treatment, mm -hmm. just enforcing equality before the law, but quickly becomes preferential. Why is there? How did that happen? Well, I, I, guess, I guess there are people who wanted to push this as far, as far as they could, but it's also true that uh, in other countries where they've had the similar things, because these programs are not unique to the United States. Uh, in India, for example. Uh, the, the courts said, you know, you can't have these kinds of preferences. Uh, you, you have to, you know, give everybody an equal chance individually. Uh, but they allowed them to take into account various, th various subjective things. And of course, in India, what they would do, they would have a five-minute interview with each uh, student. And the students whose who scores were, were not high enough, they gave them high marks on, on the interview. And the others who were up at the top, they gave them low marks on the interview. And apparently, I gather from some things that I've heard that the that Harvard, uh, that the, the the Asian students always get a lo low ratings on these subjective things, which At can't Harvard. be checked. Yes, and others get high, get high ratings. So you 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 can play these word games, uh, and I just fear uh, that uh, this decision, which seems good and certainly overdue, uh, will not lead to that kind of thing. When people back in the 50s in the northern states were, were trying to get rid of uh, racial discrimination, one of the things they did was say, you cannot uh, submit a, a photo, require applicants to submit photographs. When Woodrow Wilson first in, in introduced uh, uh, this the kind of thing into the federal system, he wanted photographs. So, so if what you're saying is you can't explicitly give preferences, but if you can find out the race of the people, then you can subjectively take that into account and the whole thing will be a farce. We'll find out whether they were serious or not. I, I, I've, there's a wonderful book called Mismatch about the, the bad effects of, of affirmative action on college students. Uh, and in it, the, the, the authors, I agree with them with everything to, until they say that, you know, the Supreme Court should take into account this and that and the other thing. And my response is, the last thing we need is nine more politicians in Washington. So, but Tom, what are, what, why is it best? Let me quote to you. The, here, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, this is the, the uh, Grutter decision in 2003. So there's Bakke in 78, there 
various minor adjustments. And then there's another, it comes up to the court again, and the court says, well, all right, you're allowed to continue considering race as a factor in admissions. Although, Justice O'Connor writes in the majority opinion, race-conscious admissions policies must be limited in time. The court expects that 25 years from now, the use of racial preferences will no longer be necessary. Okay, so the court doesn't like racial preferences. And you could even say, wait a minute, why is it that something that would be unconstitutional 25 years from now isn't unconstitutional today? But Sandra Day, these, these are decent, well-meaning people. Weren't they onto something? Didn't it do some good, even if it was in tension with the Constitution? Yes, and it did a, a whole lot of bad. And what was the bad that it did, Tom? Oh my, it, 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 well, it put many black students with all the prerequisites for success into places where they were almost guaranteed to fail. Let me, uh, I'll go all the way back to 1965 when I was teaching at Cornell. Uh, they, they suddenly brought in uh, large numbers of black students under special programs. And in relatively short times, half of them were on, on academic uh, probation because for ac academic deficiencies. And so I went over to the uh, uh, administration building and looked, looked up their SAT scores. The average black student at Cornell at that time was at the 75th percentile. Which is good. Yes. Better, better than three-quarters of the uh, other American students who took the, took the SAT. The average uh, student in the Cornell Liberal Arts College was at the 99th percentile. And so, so one, you have the students who simply do not graduate. And so there's no, there's no great gain from flunking out of an elite institution. Uh, so we, would you, Cornell University took really gifted black kids mm. and spent four years making failures out of them. Making failures out of them. This is not unique to Cornell. Uh, back when we had, uh, in the, in the, later on in the 20th century at Berkeley, uh, they had uh, black and Hispanic kids who, got, who were admitted there. They, were, they had test scores just slightly above the national average. Uh, the, the white students had uh, uh, test scores far above that. And the Asian students had it above the white students. And the great bulk of those black students, an absolute majority, failed to graduate. So they came on campus, wasted some years of their lives, some opportunities they may have had somewhere else. And they were talented people. Yeah, and, and, they, and they were people who could have, in any place else, the other, the other, other fallacy is the notion you're getting a better education at a higher rated institution. You, universities... Uh, are rated according to the research output of their faculties. They are not rated according to the teaching quality. No one in his right, Berkeley is one of the great universities of the world in research. No one in his right mind thinks that the education offered to undergraduates at Berkeley is anything, to, any, any, anything to, uh, to look up to. And so you send them not only to places where, where they, where they they cannot compete with the other students, but where the faculty really don't give much attention to that. The, the, the California uh, voters voted to end pre preferential admission to, to the university system. There were dire cons uh, complaints that this would mean no black students would be able to get this and that and so forth. The actual data show that the 
number of black students in the UC system barely changed at all. Uh, what happened was that they stopped going to Berkeley and UCLA. They went to the other campuses where their uh, proficiency was like that of the other students. In the wake of that, uh, over a four-year period, there were a thousand more minority students graduating from the system than there were under affirmative action. Moreover, that's well, the other thing that happened. So even the ones who uh, stay there and graduate, they, they, they may come in wanting to become uh, engineers, uh, mathematicians, scientists. They find they cannot possibly make it in that institution. And so they come out taking sociology, ethnic studies. They go from the hard material to the soft stuff. Yeah, and from material that'll provide you with a, with a well-paying career to a, uh, to a, uh, 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 outcome that will provide you for, with nothing. By the way, this brings us to the concurring uh, opinion Justice Clarence Thomas mm. writes in Students for Fair Admission versus Harvard. Affirmative action, he writes, fails to increase the overall number of blacks and Hispanics in universities, quote, rather those racial policies simply redistribute individuals, placing some into more competitive institutions than they would otherwise have attended. Studies suggest that large racial preferences for black and Hispanic applicants have led to a disproportionately large share of those students receiving mediocre or poor grades. C. T. Soul, affirmative action around the world. Um, I couldn't help thinking, you told me at one point, I think your first paying job was as a Western Union telegram delivery yes, boy. Yes. Tom, you're now being quoted in Supreme Court decisions. Well, I'm not sure. The, uh, I'm not, That's uh, not a promotion. <laughs> there was, in these decisions, Chief Justice Roberts wrote the majority decision. Justice Thomas wrote a concurring decision. Justice Jackson uh, wrote a, a dissent. Mm. And Justice Jackson and Justice Thomas had at each other mm. in their decisions. I thought it was a fascinating exchange. These are the two African He went to Yale Law School. She went to Harvard Law School. These are both very bright people. Let me read a few quotations okay. from Justice Jackson, and then we'll go to Justice Thomas. Mm -hmm. This is Justice Jackson. Gulf-sized race-based gaps exist with respect to health, wealth, and the well-being of American citizens. They were created in the distant past, but have indisputably been passed down to the present day. Yet today, this court determines that holistic admissions programs, by which she means programs that take race into account, are a problem rather than a viable solution, as has long been evident to historians, sociologists, and policymakers alike." Close quote. What do you make of that? Well, it's, it's, if, if what she said was true, it would, it would have implications. None of it's true. None of it's true. None of it's true. Or the, or it does have the support of the academic elite. I, 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 it does have that. And some people regard that as the same as a documented fact. I'm not one of those people. All right. Justice Jackson continues, to be sure, black people, incidentally, she capitalizes black. Oh, good, which good. You, which you don't do. Yes, yeah. All right. Black people and other minorities have generally been doing better in recent years. But those improvements have only been made possible, not helped, not enhanced, but only been made possible 
because institutions like the University of North Carolina have been willing to grapple forthrightly with the burdens of history, close quote. Dr. Sowell? Well, they're, they're, I wasn't aware that the University of North Carolina is, uh, is qualified to gra gra grasp the, uh, the, the forces of history. history. Yes, I would like to see some facts about this. So, the same thing, similar pattern of uh, the UC system you see in a place like uh, MIT. One study showed that the average black student at MIT uh, scored in the top 10 percent on the math portion of the SAT and in the bottom 10 percent at MIT. Oh. I mean, at MIT, it's only a question of which part of the, of the 99th percentile you're in. Right. And so, and, and <laughs> again, there have been, been actually empirical studies done with medical schools, law schools, and in every single case, where the black students are put in where, 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 places where the other students have similar SAT scores of their own. They learn more. And in, in, in professions like law and medicine, there is an independent test, independently of the institution that you were tested in, to see whether you can pass the, the, the outside test to get, get license. Our exam and so that, right. That's right. Mm -hmm. uh, and in this cases, where the, the, the one, one, in one case in uh, back east, uh, there was there was a high test, high high uh, high ranked law school and a lower ranked law school. The black students in both places had very similar SAT scores. When when they came to the bar exam, the black students in the lower ranked institution passed the uh, bar exam on the on the first try, fifty seven percent of the time, the, and the ones in the high ranked one passed it thirty percent of the time. You learn more in a place where, where, where they're teaching. The professors teach to the level of the students that they have. and when, That's their job, after all. Yeah, yeah. And, and when, when I was teaching, uh, you know, when I, when I taught at Howard University, which, which is a black institution, most of the kids have not had the top education up to that point. And I'd come to, to, to the concept of marginal cost and economics. I'd have some arithmetic examples to explain what marginal cost meant. When I taught at Cornell, I taught a class to engineers, all of whom had calculus, and I would say, well, marginal cost is the first derivative of total cost, and go on. Now, you know, there's no point in my, you know, but so the guy who's, who's, who's not had that, these guys at Cornell had probably had calculus in high school. Right. And, and, and the kid who's come out, out of the ghetto school doesn't have that. He doesn't know what the hell I'm talking about. Right, right. One more time, Justice Jackson. The majority, that is, the Chief Justice, Justice Thomas, and the four others who joined, in, joined them in voting to find race-based admissions unconstitutional, Justice Jackson says the majority seems to think that race blindness solves the problem of race-based disadvantage. But the irony is that requiring colleges to ignore race in admissions will delay the day that every American has an equal opportunity to thrive regardless of race. And this is by who? Justice Jackson. Not one speck of evidence. Not one speck of evidence. All right. Now we go to um, Justice Thomas. Quote, with the passage of the 14th Amendment, the amendment that uh, added the uh, was added to the Constitution after the Civil War. With the passage of the 14th Amendment, the people of our nation proclaimed that it is the law that the government may not sort citizens based on race. 
he's making a constitutional argument rather mm -hmm. than an argument on sociology. That's one point. It is this principle that has guaranteed a nation of equal citizens the equal protection of the laws, close quote. Well, isn't that a little cold and analytical? He's not concerned about the effects of the law. He's just concerned with the law. Well, I think it's wonderful when judges are concerned with the effects of the law. That's what they do. What, what, is, what has been tragic in so much social justice talk is people who think that because they are very well qualified in certain areas, that enables them to make decisions for other people in other areas where they may lack and probably do lack minimal competence. I mean, the, the second guessing of the police by people with PhDs is incredible, especially when things like uh, you know, how many shots did they fire, you know. And this is said by people who probably never had a gun in their hands in their whole lives. Uh, but because they, are, they may be the world's authority on French literature or Mayan culture, they think that they can uh, talk about other things that they absolutely know nothing about. So, so can I ask you just, I mean, I think I know the answer to this, but I just want to square it up and give you the chance to address it squarely. Is it your, it's your view certainly that the, that the Constitution correctly interpreted is colorblind, yes. correct? Right. So we make no distinctions. Discrimination would suggest unfair distinctions. Affirmative action would suggest distinctions that are at least grounded in a will to be helpful. Mm -hmm. They're both unconstitutional. We make no distinctions based on race. Okay, that's one point. You've already made that point. You want to contend that this colorblind constitution, if we behave as if we're going to obey it, mm. and we don't make distinctions based on race, that that is best for African Americans. It's not, it's not a, again, if, 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 we, if we turn to hard facts, the hard facts is that between 1940 and 1960, practically nobody was paying any attention to black. Walter Williams used to say that he was so lucky to be born before white people wanted to be nice to blacks. Uh, he, he traced his own career to when a white teacher in a, a school in the Philadelphia ghetto chewed him out unmercifully. And he was very angry and so forth. But he traces his own uh, uh, progress from that point on to, 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 that, to being chewed out. That doesn't, that doesn't happen, uh, you know, uh, anymore. Again, I mean, the, the hard facts, 1940 to 1960, there, were, there was not all the, all the there, were, there were no great riots and, and so forth. There were no great uh, demonstrations. There were no, they, most intellectuals weren't paying much attention to blacks one way or the other. In the places where they were paying attention, the South, they were paying attention to, to enforce discriminatory laws. Under those conditions, blacks advanced better than under these uh, new conditions beginning in the 1960s, which was so, supposed to be so, uh, uh, so, so favorable. All right. Tom, <clears throat> are you aware that there are thousands of videos on YouTube that follow this format? It's stu uh, people, one, two, three, four, watching a video of you and then commenting on it. Are you aware that you are a YouTuber? I've, I've, seen, I've seen that once. You've seen it once? I'm going to show you a couple if you don't mind. Well. I want you to, I want you to see what people make of you. And then I'm, uh, let's go ahead. Here's the first one. What advice would you give a young Thomas Sowell? 
how do you make something of yourself as an African-American in America today? The way anybody else would. You equip yourself with skills that people are willing to pay for. I like how you talk. I'm telling it happens you. to me. I like how you talk. Yeah. I'm telling you, shit, that make me smile. I like how you talk. Come on, I, I feel like it's a lot of young, young kids, young teenagers, young adults that need to be listening. I like how he talks, and I can think of a lot of kids that need to be listening. How can it be that what you say, learn skills that people are willing to pay for, how can it be that that can strike people such as so many Americans as fresh, countercultural, heretical, something that kids need to hear? How can it be that in this day and age, it strikes people as... It's common sense. It's... Uh, and one of the problems with many of the elites is that they, that, you know, the very commonness of common sense does not serve their purposes. It's wonderful to believe that you have some insights that all the vast millions don't have and that therefore uh, you should be making their decisions for them. I think the minimum wage laws are, are, are a classic example of this, that we have uh, people out there who think that when, when there are jobs available, at wages that the, teen, the black teenagers are willing to accept and the employers are willing to pay. They're third parties, knowing nothing about either the industry or about the condition of the other people themselves, have a right to pass laws forbidding them from, ha from ha having wages that get them employed. And then when they discover, or in most cases they don't even check, uh, that the, that the uh, Unemployment of the teenagers goes up as you raise the minimum wage. Uh, one of the things I mentioned in the book, in 1948, uh, black and white teenagers had virtually identical unemployment rates. And it was a fraction of what teenagers of all sorts uh, have today. And the reason was quite simple. The minimum wage law was passed in 1938, and it hadn't been changed in 10 years. And those were 10 years of runaway inflation. And so, the, 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 for all practical purpose, there was no minimum wage law. I see. And under those conditions, you got black and white teenagers having un unemployment rates of 10% and no difference between them. Now, in come the wonderful people with the wonderful ideas, and they keep raising the minimum wage just to keep ahead of inflation. And now, for a period of more than two decades, consecutive decades, the, the minimum wage rates for black teenagers never falls below 20%. And in some years, it's over 40%. And yeah, in the early- Unemployment. Unemployment right, rates, right, right. yes. Yeah. Uh, and, and in the early 20th century, uh, it hit 52% right after Obama had, was elected president. So presumably, there was less racism in, 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 in 2003, I think it was, than there was in 1948. And the, this is because I, I want to understand the concept, but I, have, I don't know how to put it other than crudely, that the market doesn't think that the 52% who are unemployed can provide value up to the level of the minimum that, wage. That, 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 that's true, yes. That's yes. true. But the argument is, that's nobody's business. 
those kids need you need to get started someplace in life, and maybe maybe you get started with a, a a job that pays well below the minimum wage. But if you're willing to take that wage and do the work, it's a way of entering the workforce. Yes, learning skill isn't that right? Oh, absolutely. Okay. And, and they, they, but they never take into account the kid that not only loses the, the 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 jobs he could have had otherwise, he loses the experience, which is even more valuable than the job itself. And so they act as if when you, if you take a job at, at McDonald's, you're going to be at McDonald's 20 years from now. Now, the hard data say that the people who are working at, uh, with the, these hamburger stands on January 1st are very unlikely to be working at the, at the hamburger stands on December 31st. Right. right. You know, that they, that, that they have high turnovers and so forth. But, the, but again... Because they get the, better jobs. Yeah, yeah. But the, terrible, the, the biggest institutional problem is the people who make these kinds of decisions with great confidence pay no price for being wrong, no matter how wrong or how harmful that is to other people. Did you get paid minimum wage when you were delivering telegrams for Western Union? Yes. No, no. I, was, I got more than that. The, t- the minimum wage was 40 cents an hour in 1938. I was paid 65 cents an hour. But of course, 65 cents an hour in 1946, which is when I went, went to work, uh, was less in, in value than the 40 cents in, in 1930. Oh, so you, li- you were like Walter Williams. You got the benefit of entering the market when there was effectively no minimum wage. Oh, that's right. That's right. All right. All right. Tom, let me show you another video, if I may. Where does the press fall into this as the United Group? Are they part of the Oh, United? absolutely. They're a major part of it because one of the reasons that people don't get many of the facts that go against what's believed is that the press doesn't choose to publicize those facts. So who are the anointed? You use this term in your book called the vision of the anointed. Who are the anointed? These are the people who are crusading for all kinds of things like social justice and in other areas as well, uh, who are trying to... to preempt the decisions of individuals and substitute what they think of as their higher understanding, when in fact the people who are uh, making their own decisions know a lot more about their circumstances than these, th- than these third parties can possibly know. All right. One, one more video, one final video, if I may tell you. We've seen, they're looking at something we've already seen, but this is a somewhat different context. Somewhere, watching this interview, there's a young Thomas Sowell. There's an African-American who's smart and wants to do something with his life. What's, it seems to me I've all, we've already got one piece of advice you'd offer to him is stay away from the, from the racist industry. Stay away from the what, race, what, hustlers. What advi- race hustlers. What advice would you give a young Thomas Sowell? How do you make something of yourself? as an African-American in America today, the way anybody else would. You equip yourself with skills that people are willing to pay for. Mm. I like that. I want to I like that. All right, so, yeah. I like okay. Tom. Thoughts? I like Tom. Now, you're a professional academic, and yet all your... Well, I don't, I've, I've known you a good long time now, and but I didn't know you when you were teaching at Cornell, and. Mm. But ever since I've known you, and ever since I started reading your work, you had a column in Forbes magazine. You wrote Basic Economics, which is clearly intended for a general audience. You have taken seriously. I'm just, I'm wondering how you think about your work on the one hand as an academic, on the other hand, as someone who takes seriously 
this may be a high-flown way of putting it, but take seriously the notion that we live in a democracy, that you need to bring people with you. Why, why have you, apart from anything else, why are you still at it, Tom? You haven't had anything to prove to anybody in about three decades, maybe half a century. Well, I think that the, if, if you, you see the, all the disasters around you, it's not, not surprising that you might think this, uh, there could be some improvement made. <laughs> all right. Tom, um, could you, back, back to Clarence Thomas, who's mm -hmm. a friend of yours and I think would have no hesitation in describing himself as a disciple of yours, really. Would you close this conversation by reading an excerpt from Justice Thomas's concurrence? He was, uh, he was not a disciple of mine. We met uh, uh, as a result of his own change in his own mind. So someone once gave him a book of mine when he was, when he was, when he was in his more radical phase. And as he told me, he simply threw it in the wastebasket. Uh, <laughs> well, as long as they, as long as they paid full retail for it, uh, 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 as long as you got uh, your uh, and, and, and so, so when was when did you meet him? When did you meet him? Oh heavens, I met him in 1978. There was a a, a symposium on equality at Washington University in St. Louis, and I was there as a commentator on a paper being given by a professor of law at Columbia University uh, named Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Really? Yes. And I had a few critical things to say, as a matter of fact. Uh, uh, and on another panel, the main presenter was a professor of law from the University of Chicago named Antonine Scalia. And in the audience was an unknown young black do do uh, lawyer named Clarence Thomas. And, that, and that's where we met. And he introduced himself to you? Yeah. Having had, at that point, had he read any of your work? Well, well what, what had happened is he, his... He himself had, had, had thrown away the stuff that he had, was, had believed before, and he was explaining his, his, his viewpoint to, to a friend of his, and, he, and someone says, hey, you know, there's another guy who said the same thing. And that's why, and so, so I did not, I was not the reason that he said that he uh, reached his conclusion. He reached the conclusion, and that was the reason he came there uh, to, 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 to see so, me and the other people. Oh, but this touches something really important. And it, we can see it in the YouTube video. If you watch some of the faces there, the faces are surprised. They, they're hearing things they haven't heard before. Yeah. And the question is, is it hopeless or can people change their minds? Clarence Thomas changed his mind. Yes. You changed your mind. Oh, yes. I was, I was a Marxist. Until what age? Dur during the McCarthy era. You were <laughs> Marxist during the McCarthy era. Well, Always you, out of you know step. how to pick your enemies. Yes. Well, what changed your mind? Facts. All right. You know, uh, as you get more and more facts, especially if you pay attention to them, uh, you realize that uh, this doesn't square with what, what's being said. Uh, and at that point, uh, you And know, you were working for the government. Wasn't that a form yes, of experience? Yeah, that, that, was, that was it. I was, uh, I was a summer intern. I was still a graduate student, but during the summer, I was an intern at the Labor Department. And uh, I was concerned about minimum wage, wages uh, then as, as now. And uh, the question was, were the minimum wages causing people, poor people to get more money or were they causing them not to be employed at all, which means they got less money? It also means, by the way, for teenagers that uh, they not only get uh, no job, it means that they, they now have, if they want money, they have to do things that are illegal, like selling drugs. Right. 
uh, which has its own hazards. Yes, it does. And but the people who who are, are for minimum wages, they think that they are doing a wonderful thing for the poor, and it never occurs to them to ever check their what they believe against hard facts. All right. Could uh, you read us this this excerpt where, from, from where, Justice where? Thomas? The whole thing. I, oh, we, we, all right. There are a lot of people who like your voice, Tom. Oh, oh well, I don't know about all that, but this, the the court's opinion sees the university's admissions policies for what they are, race-based preferences designed to ensure a particular racial mix in their entering classes. Those policies fly in the face of our colorblind constitution and our nation's equality ideal. In short, they are plainly unconstitutional. While I am painfully aware of the social and economic ravages which have befallen my race and all who suffer discrimination, I hold that enduring hope that this country will live up to its principles, so clearly enunciated in, enunciated in, the, in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States, that all men are created equal, equal, are equal citizens, and must be treated equally before the law. Tom Sowell subscribes to every word? Yes. Thomas Sowell, economist, teacher, social critic, author, most recently of Social Justice Fallacies. Thank you. Thank you. For Uncommon Knowledge, the Hoover Institution and Fox Nation, I'm Peter Robinson.